Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod, just like our new friend at Goad Philip did recently, and I want to give him a particular shout out because right now he's embarking on a very ambitious venture. He started binge listening to our episodes recently, and early on I said that I'd like to know how many matches on Raw have ended in a disqualification since I started doing the show. Well, Mr. Goad has decided to actually start keeping a tally of all of those disqualifications. Personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the numbers end up being, so thank you, Philip, for biting the bullet and essentially translating Vince Russo into statistical form. And also, in addition to Twitter and email, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. A quick note up front, as I've mentioned on this show before, I recently appeared on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast's Nitromania series, where I covered Halloween Havoc 1995 with the show's host, Adam. On a related note, the Rundown also has a series called Wrestlemania Salvation, which is hosted by a friend of mine named, wait for it, Sal. So I'll be appearing on an upcoming episode of that show, and I'll be covering WrestleMania 7 with him, so I would recommend that you subscribe to The Rundown if you want to check out my appearance on that show. As usual, the link to The Rundown will be in the episode description for the Raw Attitude podcast, so definitely be sure to subscribe to that show. And speaking of shows on the Questionable Endeavor Network, I also want to give a shout-out to the New Blood Rising podcast, because they just started their brand new season, where they will be covering every match from The Undertaker's WrestleMania streak. Please be sure to check that out, because they're off to a fantastic start, and of course, I cannot recommend that podcast highly enough. And my final note before we begin is that I'm going to let you know up front that even though this is obviously a podcast devoted to Monday Night Raw, I'm going to spend a little more time than usual diving into what was happening over in WCW at the end of this show. I know that might sound random, but when I explain the reasons for it later on, I think you'll see why I felt that WCW needed a little bit more attention on this particular night, so stay tuned for that. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, October 26, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Cole Center on the campus of the University of Wisconsin, located in the capital city of Madison. Normally, this would be the time where I would list all the other important events which took place in this same building, but, unfortunately, this is the only time that the WWF slash WWE has ever done a show at the Cole Center. Sorry, Badger fans. We open with a recap of last week's festivities, where Vince McMahon fired Stone Cold Steve Austin at Judgment Day, and Austin then proceeded to take Vince hostage on Raw, culminating with Stone Cold putting a gun to the chairman's head and pulling the trigger, but a flag that said Bang 316 popped out. And of course, due to his nervousness about the situation, we could see that Mr. McMahon had pissed his pants. Very humiliating. 
One other important detail that they focus on in the recap video is the fact that Austin puts some sort of document in the front of Vince's suit coat, so perhaps we'll figure out what it is tonight. And for the first time in several weeks, we actually do queue up the opening credits, but no pyro and no scanning of the crowd. However, I will, of course, list some of the entertaining signs in the crowd for you, and almost all the best ones this week were pointed in Vince McMahon's direction, including McMahon, you're in trouble, Patterson sucks off Vince, fuck McMahon, pissy pants McMahon, Vince is a queef, and rehire Austin, your life depends on it, with a depends diaper attached to the sign. We begin the show with footage from earlier today of Stone Cold Steve Austin entering the arena with a big smile on his face, and the commentators speculate that he certainly could not have been invited to the arena by Vince McMahon, which is probably a fair assumption. From there, we go inside the arena, where the wheelchair-bound Mr. McMahon rolls himself to the top of the ramp, accompanied by Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, Commissioner Slaughter, the big boss man, and four men dressed in suits who are presumably Vince's attorneys. I will also note that at the top of the ramp near where everyone is standing, or sitting in Vince's case, we can see that a drum kit has already been set up because the band Motley Crue will be performing tonight on Raw, and I'm eager to see whether or not the WWE Network edits out that footage. So the chairman begins by saying that Stone Cold is here tonight against Vince's wishes, and not only does he hold Austin responsible for all his actions over the past few weeks, but he holds the fans responsible as well. In fact... Let's pick it up from there. My God, what's the matter with you people? I've lost all faith in humanity. Where the hell are your values? That's right. Where are your morals? Whatever happened to the good Samaritan? Where were you in my hour of need? I'll tell you where you were. You were cheering for every act of humiliation Austin committed against me. We're doing it again. You savored every violation, every liberty that Austin took against me. But what you enjoyed the most was when Austin forced me to go to the ring. He made me get down on my knees. He made me beg. He made me, he made me cry. He made me urinate myself. And where were you? Where were any of you? No one came to my aid. Not you, Briscoe. Not you, Patterson. Or the commissioner. No one. My ankle has been re-injured. I've ruined a perfectly good Armani suit. I hurt all over. 
But most of all, my feelings have been hurt. They've been crushed. But despite the injury, the insult, Austin, after the injury, I will never, ever forgive you for. That wasn't a letter of introduction you jammed down into my coat pocket. Oh, no. That was a legal document, Austin, and you knew damn well then it was a legal document. And with this battery of attorneys that I have behind me, Austin, I will fight you. I will fight you in court if I can. Hell, I'll fight you all the way to the Supreme Court. Vince then finishes up by saying, quote, You better take stock in what I say, which cues up an obviously pre-taped Stone Cold on the Titantron, who responds by saying that when it comes to stock, Vince should stock up on Pampers after he pissed himself last week. Vince then angrily yells for the Stooges to wheel him backstage, and that is how our opening segment comes to a close. So now we know that the piece of paper that Austin put in Vince's pocket last week was some sort of legal document, but what exactly was it? Stay tuned, because I have a feeling we're going to find out later tonight. We then kick into our first match of the evening, and it is a WWF European title match, champion X-Pac versus the lethal weapon Steve Blackman. And by the way, just for the record, they show a shot of the crowd before Pac comes out, and then, once his music hits, we see that almost everyone comes to their feet. Pretty crazy to see X-Pac get such a huge ovation, but you can't deny that the dude was still massively over in 1998. Two years from now, eh, not so much, but the fans fucking love the guy at the moment at least. Before the match starts, we get a recap of last week, where China was arrested by a pair of police officers during the X-Pac-Ken Shamrock match. Jim Ross informs us that the reason for the arrest was because China failed to appear for her court date for the sexual harassment lawsuit that Mark Henry filed against her, and apparently the cops couldn't track her down until 15 minutes into Raw for some reason. Personally, I think those officers just wanted to get on TV. The bigger story here, though, is that China has now taken a leave of absence from the WWF until the legal matters are resolved, so she is not accompanying X-Pac to the ring tonight. Getting into the match itself, I'm probably the one person in the world who was actually excited about an X-Pac Steve Blackman encounter, and it was actually pretty good for the time they were given, which was, of course, not very much. After about three minutes of action, Blackman clotheslined X-Pac over the top rope, and then, when Pac was on the floor, he was attacked by a man who was making his return to the WWF after having been gone for the past four months. I'll tell you what, this is going to be a blockbuster night. Oh, wait a minute! There's Steve Regal! Steve, Steve Regal King! Right, that's a real man's man! Steven Regal from Blackpool, England, assaulting X-Pac. Here in the app, why is, why is Regal attacking X-Pac? Here come the outlaws! The outlaws trying to intervene here. And look at Regal! Regal striking anything that moves. He's Yes, that's right. Steven Regal is back on Raw for the first time since his one-off match on the show back in June. And now, since he has become a real man's man, he's wearing a flannel shirt with Timberland boots and uh, jean shorts for some reason. 
So as you heard there, shortly after Regal attacks X-Pac, the New Age Outlaws run out from backstage to provide backup for Pac until referees proceed to separate everyone. Regal is eventually escorted backstage, but he has certainly made his presence felt on his first night back with the company. Unfortunately, we don't get to hear his new amazing theme song, but I think they do play it on next week's episode of Raw, so I'll save that amazing soundbite for the next episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast as well. We then cut backstage where we see Vince McMahon in a conference room, angrily yelling at his lawyers. Apparently, he's pretty upset with the lack of progress being made on circumventing that legal document. And from there, we then segue over to Michael Cole, who is standing outside of Stone Cold Steve Austin's locker room. Cole says he'll try to get a word with Austin in just a little bit, and my first question to him would be, why the hell do you get your own locker room when you're technically still fired from the company? We then go back to the arena for our next match, Darren Drozdov, accompanied by Hawk and Animal, versus The Rock. How's that for a matchup you never expected to see? Also, you will be pleased to know that The Rock has gone back to his usual theme song this week after taking a bit of a detour and coming out to a new, terrible theme last week. If you want to hear that one, be sure to listen to the previous episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, because that theme song was bad. So getting into the Rock Draws match, one interesting thing I will note is that the Rock was actually acting quite heelish during this match, despite his newfound popularity with the fans. When he and Draws locked up in the corner, the referee got between them, but then Rock took a cheap shot at Draws. And later on in the match, when Hawk jumped up on the ring apron to try and interfere, Rock punched Draws in the dick behind the ref's back. Very interesting. I mean, not the part about punching him in the dick, but interesting that The Rock is suddenly using a rather heelish arsenal. Overall, though, this was a pretty bad match, as these two basically had zero chemistry together, and at several points, it even appeared as though The Rock was frustrated with Draws' in-ring work. The finish of the match came when Draws went for a clothesline, but Rock grabbed his arm and hit him with a rock bottom, followed by the people's elbow, and that was enough to score the three count. And I could be mistaken, but I believe this is the first time on Raw that The Rock has finished a match with the people's elbow instead of his usual rock bottom, but uh, don't quote me on that. After the match, Hawk and Animal entered the ring in an attempt to console Draws. Hawk was the first to try and help Draws up, but Draws instead pushed him away. Draws and Animal then started walking backstage together, leaving Hawk by himself in the ring. I think the WWF is sending a clear message with this Hawk angle. Getting sober will only result in your friends hating you, so you should probably continue to be a pathetic drunk. We then go backstage again to Michael Cole, who gets Stone Cold Steve Austin to slightly open his locker room door. Austin says that we will comment on the matter later tonight, leading the commentators to speculate as to who we would be. Although granted, Austin is a former king of the ring, so perhaps he was using the royal we to refer to himself. It's a possibility, I think. We then go elsewhere backstage where we see the lawyers exiting their meeting with Vince McMahon, and we can hear one of them say, quote, He just doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. And since they're talking about things Vince doesn't understand, judging from all of his ventures, I can only guess that they must be referring to either football, movies, running a restaurant, opening a bodybuilding federation, or the public's interest in his wife being in the U.S. Senate. Definitely one of those. Up next, the New Age Outlaws and X-Pac head to the top of the ramp, not for a match, but because they're here to introduce Motley Crue. And X-Pac seems surprisingly happy to be there, even though he just got sneak attacked by Steven Regal just a few segments ago. So Motley Crue actually performed their song Bitter Pill on last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat, and this was notable for two reasons. 
Number one, while they were singing, they were showing random footage on the Titantron behind them, and the content they showed is actually the exact same footage which will later be used at the very beginning of Chris Jericho's Titantron video. The random shots of a city, the woman arching her back and sticking her hand in the air, you probably know what I'm talking about if you've ever seen it. And number two, Motley Crue's bodyguard was testing the mic before he was interrupted by the outlaws, and that same bodyguard makes an appearance tonight on Raw as well, so let's get into that performance. So tonight, instead of performing a new song, the crew perform Wild Side from their very popular 1987 album, Girls, Girls, Girls. This goes on for about six minutes, and yes, I'm as surprised as you are that it's not edited out on the WWE Network. It's worth checking out for a couple reasons, the first one being that lead singer Vince Neil wears a shirt that simply says, in all capital letters, FUCKER. He has put a piece of duct tape over the letter U to somewhat censor it, which, I guess, made it acceptable to air on the USA Network, but I thought that was pretty amusing. The performance is also worth checking out because you get to see Billy Gunn attempt to dance and play air guitar. Not his finest hour. At the end of the song, we see a random, quote-unquote, fan run onto the entrance ramp, and Motley Crue's bodyguard then proceeds to pick him up on his shoulders and carry him off backstage. And at this point, Jim Ross informs us what the name of that bodyguard is. Today, what that big bodyguard test has been busy last night on heating up the mansion, and more action here tonight. Yes, Motley Crue's bodyguard is nicknamed Test, presumably because he's the guy who says test, test, test into the microphone before they perform. Of course, that's a ridiculously stupid name, and if we ever see him again, I assume they will change that and give him literally any other name because of how dumb that sounds, no doubt. After a commercial break, we then go backstage where Vince McMahon is arguing with some of his lawyers, and he angrily yells, You can't break the contract? So I guess we now have some more information as to what that legal document is. Perhaps we'll get a few more details a little bit later on. We then go back to the arena where it's time for our next match, Kane versus Gangrel, who is accompanied by your new WWF light heavyweight champion, Christian. Once again, Gangrel and Christian just walk out from backstage instead of coming up through a ring of fire, which bums me out, but I suppose it makes a little bit of sense since Kane also incorporates fire during his entrance. Maybe they don't want to overdo it and risk having the fire department shut the match down. Another important thing to note about this match is the fact that Kane is matched up against a guy who is quite obviously a heel. Last week on Raw, The Undertaker and Paul Bearer abandoned Kane, so it definitely appears as though we're witnessing the beginning of a face turn for the Big Red Machine. So as for the match, it ended up essentially being a three-minute squash victory for Kane, as he pretty much defeated Gangrel with ease. The finish came when Kane caught Gangrel with a choke slam and did the Undertaker-style pin where he holds down his opponent's arms, and that was enough to score the three count. Surprisingly, no tombstone to finish off Gangrel, just a choke slam was enough. After the match, Christian went to the top rope and hit Kane with a flying elbow, but he just bounced right off of him as though it had no effect. Gangrel then helped Christian double-team Kane, and we'll pick it up there because something rather interesting then happens. Christian came flying off the rope, the top turnbuckle rather, and now Gangrel and Christian are, are double-teaming Kane. There's a double-team. Oh! 
So as you heard there, with Gangrel and Christian beating up Kane, Edge ran into the ring, seemingly to even the odds, but instead he helped them attack Kane. All three men knocked him to the ground, but then Kane did his zombie sit-up routine and no-sold it, which certainly doesn't make this new trio look all that strong. Edge, Christian, and Gangrel then exited the ring, and Edge proceeded to lead the other two men through the crowd as Kane looked on. The Big Red Machine won the match, but it appears as though we may have a new gothic trio on our hands, and just in time for Halloween 2, since this episode aired on October 26th. As a side note, I actually quite enjoy what this stable ends up becoming, so I hope you do as well in the coming weeks. It's good stuff, I promise. We then cut backstage again, where we see Shane McMahon walking away from Michael Cole. Cole tells us that he just spoke with Shane, and he says that he will have a statement from, quote, the whole McMahon family in just a moment. And so, after a commercial break, Stone Cold Steve Austin heads to the ring, accompanied by his usual massive pop. Interestingly, as Austin is walking to the ring, we see that a fan is holding up a large sign which simply says, What? Spoiler alert for three years from now, Austin will end up stealing that word and accidentally ruining every wrestling promo from then until the end of time. Stone Cold grabs a mic and then proceeds to recap all the events from last week, specifically the part where Vince pissed his pants. He then pulls the legal document out of his back pocket and says that he now has a new contract with the World Wrestling Federation, and not only that, but it actually includes a provision saying that Austin must get one shot at the WWF title. Stone Cold then tells the crowd that the only way he'll ever leave the WWF is if he quits, and he doesn't see himself doing that anytime soon. Vince McMahon then wheels himself out to the top of the ramp, accompanied by the big boss man, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter. Vince tells Austin that, since Stone Cold mentioned the word quit, he's going to book him into an I Quit match tonight, and it will be Austin versus Ken Shamrock. And this instantly reminded me of one of the greatest matches in WrestleMania history, Austin versus Bret Hart in a submission match at WrestleMania 13, because the guest referee for that match was, of course, Ken Shamrock. Vince then turns his attention to Stone Cold's new contract, and asks him how he could drive a wedge like that between Vince and someone close to him. Initially, it's not clear what Vince is referencing, but then we see a certain someone make his way to the ring, so I'll just pick it up from there. Shane? Shane, come on up here. Shane. Shane, come up here. Shane! Shane, what are you doing? I don't listen to you anymore. I am an officer, more importantly, a stockholder of this company. And what you did to Stone Cold Steve Austin was wrong, Dad. You were wrong. He's just a kid. He's just a kid. I just wanted to tell you personally that it was me. It was me, Dad, that hired Stone Cold back. It was me. I guess I finally have your attention now, don't I? After 28 years, I finally have your attention. 
I've seen superstars come, and I've seen superstars go. And why, Dad, why? Because it's always been about your ego. You said it yourself, no one is bigger than Vince McMahon, oh no. All my life, people have asked me, boy, what's it like to be Vince McMahon's son? Wow, wasn't that great? And I have lied year after year after year to protect you, to protect our family name. Well, the line stops now. I am tired of it. You never cared about me. Everything, I couldn't do anything right for you. Nothing is ever right. My grades in school were never good enough for you. Yes, they were. My athletic accomplishments were never good enough for you. My business deals, no matter how much money I made you, was never good enough for you. The only thing I ever wanted from you, the only thing I ever wanted is for you to be proud of me, of me! But I finally figured it out that's never ever gonna happen. Because it's never been about me, it's always been about you. You, Dad! It's always about perception. Perception. Ever since, I've always known as Vince's boy. How does Vince's boy make him look? It wasn't about me. It was about how I made you look that perception and your big corporate parties. You're my son. And I'm your son. But I'm not your little boy anymore. I'm a man and I stand in this ring as a man. I am no longer your boy, Dad. I am proud of who I am. I am proud of the person I have become. My name is Shane McMahon. And for 28 years, for 28 years, I've finally built up enough courage to face you here today to stand up to you. I guess now you have something to be proud of me about, don't you, Dad? Because I finally stood up to you, and I had the brass to do it. Isn't it ironic? I guess I'm just like you after all. Isn't that right, Dad? And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me He'd grown up just like me My boy was just like me And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon Little boy blue and the man Sorry, sorry, they didn't actually play Cats in the Cradle during the initial broadcast, but I thought it would have been fitting. But anyway, there you have it. Stone Cold Steve Austin was given a new contract by Vince's son, Shane McMahon. For those scoring at home, this is the first time that we've actually seen Shane as an on-screen character. Up to this point, he's been doing commentary on Sunday Night Heat, and, let's face it, he's been pretty terrible at it, so having him as a character instead is a pretty nice change of pace, even though that promo may have gone on a bit long. 
and after a commercial break, we see Shane backstage preparing to exit the arena when we hear Austin's voice. He says, Hey, kid. And then he proceeds to toss Shane a beer before the boss's son walks out the door. If you've ever seen that old Coca-Cola commercial where Mean Joe Green tosses his jersey to a child, it's basically the exact same scenario. Except for the fact that Mean Joe doesn't provide the kid with alcohol before he's presumably about to go get into an automobile. Good life lessons there from the WWF. We then go back to the arena where it's time for our next match, Tiger Ali Singh, accompanied by Babu, versus The Godfather. If you recall last week, Tiger challenged a young woman from the crowd to swallow a whole foot-long kielbasa, but he became angry when the Godfather informed him that she used to be one of his hoes. So yes, that's really the setup for this match. Fun fact, this is not actually Tiger Ali Singh's first match in the WWF. Back in April of 1997, when the WWF did a tour of Kuwait, they held a 16-man tournament called the Kuwait Cup, which Tiger actually won for some reason. A week later, when they returned to the States, he competed on one episode of Raw on April 21, 1997, where he defeated Salvatore Sincere, and he hasn't wrestled on Raw since. As for The Godfather, tonight we got the debut of his brand new theme music, which ends up being the same theme music he uses for the rest of his illustrious career in the WWF slash WWE. Interestingly, when The Godfather emerges from backstage, he has no ladies with him, but he does have a microphone. He says there won't be any hoes tonight because he's not going to offer Tiger the same deal he usually does for his other opponents, and, in what also goes on to be his signature catchphrase, he tells Tiger that he's about to show him that pimpin' ain't easy. Unfortunately, they then proceed to have a really bad four-and-a-half-minute match, completely boring the crowd. In fact, the fans were so uninterested in this match that they start to do the wave, and I'm pretty sure this is the first time we see that in the WWF. And perhaps that's the reason why the WWF only did one show ever at the Cole Center? Hmm, maybe. Also, in response to the fans doing the wave, Jim Ross amusingly says that the WWF fans love to express themselves, and he was way ahead of his time on that one, because that ends up being the non-stop company mantra about seven years later, when the fans end up turning against John Cena. Jim Ross, always one step ahead of the rest of us. But anyway, as for the Godfather-Tiger Ali Singh match, it ends up going to a double disqualification, simply because both men keep ignoring the referee and hitting each other with mounted punches. So not only was it a shitty match, but it also had a shitty finish. Quite the combination. After a commercial break, we then go backstage where Michael Cole asks Vince McMahon that oh-so-insightful question, How do you feel? A traumatized Vince, who is clearly out of it, responds by saying, What did you ask me? before the Stooges wheel him away. It's actually pretty amusing that Stone Cold has pretty much tormented Vince for more than a month straight at this point, and yet we're still rooting for Austin because Vince does such a good job portraying an asshole boss. Good times. And now it's time for our next match, and it's an eight-man tag team match. Kayentai members Takamichinoku, Funaki, Togo, and Teo versus Oddity's members Kurgan, Golga, and the Insane Clown Posse. Yes, you heard that correctly. ICP are actually competing in a match on Monday Night Raw. However, if you're a juggalo listening to this podcast and you're getting your hopes up that this becomes a recurring thing, let me just warn you in advance that this is their only ever match on Monday Night Raw. But don't worry, they'll resurface on Nitro next year. 
And speaking of the clowns, we do get a big ICP chant from the crowd at the start of this match, so go figure, Madison, Wisconsin loves them some wicked clowns. And about a minute and a half into the match, Kurgan does indeed make the tag to Violent J, who pretty much just keeps working over Funaki on the canvas with either a choke spot or an eye rake. Violent J then tagged in Shaggy 2 Dope, who hit a pretty good looking top rope leg drop on Funaki. From there, however, ICP proceeded to completely disregard the referee's order to stop with the double teaming, and Violent J then threw the ref to the ground, which obviously resulted in a disqualification. Hey, Philip Goad, make sure to count that one. After the match, the other oddities then came into the ring and yelled at ICP, which caused the clowns to start walking backstage without them. Amusingly, when they got to the top of the ramp, Luna Vachon shoved Violent J in the back, which I don't think he was expecting. So there you have it. That marks the beginning and end of ICP's WWF wrestling career. And not only that, but this was also the final Monday Night Raw match for Dick Togo and Men's Teo. Both men will soon depart the WWF, leaving only Takamichinoku and Funaki as the surviving members of Kayentai. Rather unfortunate, but on the plus side, that makes it less likely that someone will get their pee-pee choppy-choppied. We then go backstage again, where Patterson, Briscoe, and Slaughter are wheeling Vince McMahon around. They take him to his limo, and before it drives off, they tell the chairman that they will see to it that Stone Cold Steve Austin says, I quit, later tonight. And on a related note, we then go elsewhere backstage where Michael Cole is with WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock. He cuts one of his usual mediocre promos, but he does specify that the Intercontinental title will not be on the line tonight in their I Quit match, so at least we've settled that. Probably the smart move since you don't want Austin winning that title. Last time he was the IC champion, he threw the belt into a river, so I think you need to preserve that thing. And now we go back to the arena for our next match, Marvelous Mark Marrow, accompanied by WWF Women's Champion Jacqueline, versus Goldust. Fun fact, this is Goldust's first match on Monday Night Raw since November 11, 1997, because shortly after that show, he dropped the gimmick and became the artist formerly known as Goldust, which was, as we all know, a tremendous success. I will also note that Jacqueline is still weaving that lock of Sable's hair in amongst her own, and I mention this because that angle has barely been followed up on since Jackie gave Sable that haircut on Raw three weeks ago. And speaking of Jackie, she attempts to interfere several times during this match, including at the very end. With Goldust positioning Marrow in the corner for the Shattered Dreams, Jackie jumped up on the ring apron to distract him. She then slapped Goldust in the face, right in front of referee Jimmy Corderas, who somehow does not disqualify Marrow for that. In response, Goldust pulls a Weinstein and plants an unwanted kiss on Jackie, and then he gets a running start and kicks Marrow right in the dick, resulting in a disqualification. And once again, Philip, there's another one to add to your tally. Goldust soon leaves the ringside area, but shortly after that, Sable emerges from backstage with a microphone. She's wearing a tight black dress, and you can tell she's looking good on this evening because even the usually straight-laced Jim Ross says, quote, Wow, boy, Sable looks hot tonight. She then proceeds to challenge Jackie for a match for the WWF Women's Championship at Survivor Series. Given Jackie's shenanigans, I was kind of hoping that it would be a hair-versus-hair match, but still, no such luck on that front. We then go backstage where Michael Cole is with the team of Mankind and Al Snow, who will be challenging the New Age Outlaws for the WWF Tag Team titles in just a few moments. 
This is the first time these two have teamed up in the WWF, and about a year from now when Mick Foley's book Have a Nice Day comes out, we find out that he and Al are actually very close friends in real life. Unfortunately for Al, that leads to Mick taking about 1,000 pot shots at him in the book, but it's all in good fun. So with that being said, let's take it to their backstage promo before the start of this match. You'll uh, team with Al Snow, and the tag team titles will be on the line as you face the New Age Outlaws. What do you think of uh, Al Snow's prowess? Well, Al is an exceptional wrestler, and we need an exceptional wrestler when you take on the tag team champions, even if I do feel, with the exception of the Rock's elbow, that the head is just about the stupid. Hey! Now look, Einstein, if you haven't noticed, you're just talking to a sock! I had to tell him I'm sorry. I had to break... Well, you are talking to a sock. Well, aren't you the clever one? I know he's just a sock. I painted him myself. But isn't he cool? Hi, I'm Mr. Socko. The New Age Outlaws don't like it. Well, we got one word for him. Socko! Socko. So from there, we go back to the arena, where it is indeed time for our WWF Tag Team title match, Champions, the New Age Outlaws versus Challengers, Mankind, and Al Snow. Okay match here that went about five and a half minutes and had a bit of a goofy finish, but, of course, given the participants, that's certainly understandable. After Al hit Road Dog with his snowplow finisher, he and Mick started arguing because Al wanted to hit Road Dog with head while Mankind wanted to finish him off with Mr. Socko. During that confusion, Road Dog simply rolled up Al from behind and got the one, the two, and the three. Your winners and still the WWF Tag Team Champions of the World the New Age Outlaws. However, as soon as the match was over, D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry ran into the ring and started beating on the Outlaws. As a reminder, China has taken a leave of absence, so she's not around to help them out. And eventually, D'Lo and Henry finish their beatdown and walk back up the ramp, but it appears as though the Outlaws may have their next challengers for the tag team titles. A bit surprising considering the fact that D'Lo and Henry were just feuding with their former stablemate The Rock up until last week, but hey, that's Attitude Era booking for you. After a commercial break, it is now time for your main event of the evening, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Ken Shamrock in an I Quit match. Of particular note is that after Shamrock comes to the ring, we see Patterson, Briscoe, and Slaughter walk to ringside and sit down in chairs in front of the commentators. They had promised to make Austin quit tonight, so I guess we'll see what they have in store. One random thing I will note up front Austin is wrestling this match without his usual black wrist tape, and I bring this up because it took me about five minutes of wondering, wait, there's something different about Stone Cold tonight, but I can't tell what it is. It's kind of like when Cody Rhodes would wrestle without knee pads. It just doesn't look right. So anyway, the match started out with a lot of brawling in and around the ring, and surprisingly very few attempts at a submission, which you would think would be the strategy for an I Quit match. About five minutes in, Shamrock finally put Austin into a camel clutch of all moves, but Stone Cold managed to break it. Shortly after that, Shamrock Irish whipped Austin to the ropes, but Gerald Briscoe grabbed Stone Cold's foot. Referee Tim White then went outside the ring to scold Briscoe, so Patterson punched Tim White in the face, knocking him to the ground. Austin then followed and started beating on all three of Vince's stooges, where he then proceeded to knock all of them to the ground as well. Meanwhile, back in the ring... Mankind snuck in behind Shamrock and put the Mr. Socko mandible claw on him. From there, Austin grabbed a steel chair and rolled back into the ring. Mankind released the mandible claw, and Stone Cold then proceeded to clobber Shamrock in the head with a massive chair shot. With Shamrock unconscious on the mat, 
Austin put a really half-assed chin lock on him, and he then physically lifted Shamrock's hand and tapped it to the mat for him. Referee Tim White then rolled back into the ring, and he called for the bell, giving the victory to Stone Cold. And by the way, if you think that hand-tapping scenario sounds familiar, it's actually the exact same way that Owen Hart defeated Shamrock at Fully Loaded in their match inside the Hart Dungeon. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, you're probably a fucking moron. Also, I'm not sure why they called this match an I Quit match, since that usually means that the opponent has to actually say I Quit. In actuality, this was really just a submission match where the loser obviously did not submit. Okay, then. After the match, Patterson, Briscoe, and Slaughter all ran into the ring, and each one of them ended up getting a stone-cold stunner for their troubles. And yet again, Briscoe continues to sell the stunner as though it was a snapmare doing a full somersault after he takes the move. Dude, Austin's been using the stunner for two years now. You might want to learn how to sell that thing. Stone Cold then proceeds to celebrate as he walks up the ramp, and Jim Ross recaps the events of tonight, mentioning that Austin tore apart the McMahon family and got himself a new five-year contract. I mentioned that last part because I'm pretty sure that neither Austin nor Shane mentioned the actual length of the deal, but apparently JR somehow knows that it's for five years. That means we can look forward to seeing Austin in the WWF until the year 2003, and, spoiler, that actually ends up being remarkably accurate. But we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to a very special Halloween version of The Wrap-Up. recap. This is going to be a very eventful ratings recap for certain, but before I get into why that is, I want to spend a few moments talking about the WCW pay-per-view, which aired the night before this episode of Nitro, and that would of course be Halloween Havoc 1998. Why does this tie so strongly into the television ratings? I'll explain. So on paper, and I say this in all seriousness, Halloween Havoc 1998 may be one of the greatest WCW pay-per-view cards of all time. Check out just the top five matches on the card. Undefeated WCW Heavyweight Champion Goldberg vs. Diamond Dallas Page, Hulk Hogan vs. The Ultimate Warrior, WCW United States Champion Bret Hart vs. Sting, Scott Hall vs. Kevin Nash, and Scott Steiner vs. Rick Steiner. Again, if you look at that card just on paper... That's pretty goddamn fantastic. Unfortunately, things don't always work out as planned. Steiner vs. Steiner was a complete mess and featured Buff Bagwell doing a run-in while wearing a Bill Clinton mask for some reason. Hall beat Nash by countout when Nash intentionally left the ringside area because he didn't want to do any more damage to his former tag team partner. And Brett beat Sting in a mediocre match after he pretty much just murdered the Stinger with a baseball bat. But the two matches I really want to focus on are Goldberg vs. DDP and Hogan vs. Warrior. So let's start 
with Hogan vs. Warrior. This match was built up as an epic rematch of their WrestleMania 6 main event, where the Warrior shockingly defeated Hogan and took his WWF title. As has been discussed on this podcast, the lead-up to the Halloween Havoc match featured Warrior disappearing in a cloud of smoke several times, hypnotizing the Disciple, and magically appearing in a mirror. So, uh, let's just say that WCW didn't do the best job creating interest in this feud. Still, it's Hogan vs. Warrior. It should be pretty epic, right? Yeah, well, let's quickly dive into this one. So first off, before the match even began, you could clearly hear loud Warrior Sucks chants coming from the crowd, so that's probably not a good sign. Also, Warrior did his customary run to the ring, but when the match started, it appeared that he was paying for it because he was clearly breathing heavily when the bell rang. Not exactly in-ring shape, it would seem. Early on, Warrior got the better of Hogan, so the Hulkster rolled out of the ring, where he then proceeded to stall for a minute and a half. And no, that is not an exaggeration. From there, they segued into a test of strength spot, which lasted for almost two minutes. And I mean, Jesus Christ, it was almost like they were trying to kill the crowd. Even better, a little while after that, when Hogan rolled to the floor, you could literally see him signal for the warrior to come after him. No subtlety whatsoever, he literally does one of those come-here motions with his hand. About eight minutes in, Hogan accidentally ran into referee Nick Patrick, then knee-dropped him for good measure, which allowed NWO members The Giant, Stevie Ray, and Vincent to come to the ring and try to interfere. Warrior was able to dispatch all three of them, and then they all just went backstage instead of sticking around the ring with the referee still knocked out. Incredibly bizarre. Nick Patrick eventually recovered, and then the match just continued without him disqualifying Hogan for knee-dropping him, and those run-ins ended up being incredibly pointless. One of the more infamous spots in the match is when Hogan then attempts two elbow drops, and Warrior rolls out of the way of each one, but then he rolls back toward Hogan, which results in Hogan accidentally tripping over him. It's actually pretty comical, and yet also incredibly sad. Picture a log rolling across a floor, and you get the general idea. And then, it got even worse. Why? Because Hogan proceeded to take a plastic bag out of his pants, which contained a lighter and some flash paper. On his first attempt, he tried to light one piece of paper, but it didn't catch fire, so he literally just threw a piece of paper at Warrior, and Warrior sold it. Good lord. From there, Hogan tried lighting another piece of paper, which instead just caught fire in his hand before he could throw it. Warrior then just kicked the lighter and paper out of the ring, as if to say, fuck this nonsense, but we're officially in disaster territory here. From there, Eric Bischoff then came to the ring, followed later by Hogan's nephew Horace, who was holding a steel chair. On the previous episode of Nitro, you may recall that Hogan smashed Horace in the skull with a chair, resulting in him legitimately having to get 11 stitches in his head. So clearly, Horace is at ringside because he wants to get revenge, right? Well, Bischoff then proceeded to literally put referee Nick Patrick in a headlock, which somehow did not result in a DQ again, and that enabled Horace to come into the ring and smack the warrior in the back with it, which makes no fucking sense. Bischoff then released the headlock, Nick Patrick made the count, and Hulk Hogan got the pinfall victory over the Warrior. After the match, Hogan then tells Horace, quote, You passed the test, so uh, I guess Horace had to display his loyalty by getting murdered with a chair for some reason? Sure, why not? 
Horace then takes a bottle of lighter fluid and proceeds to pour it all over Warrior, but before they can burn him to death, security intervenes and forces them to leave the ringside area. Eventually, Warrior gets back to his feet more than two minutes later. That's right, the Warrior, who is basically portrayed as a god, was taken out for more than two minutes by a Horace chair shot to the back. Clearly some very strong booking there. Now, it should be noted that this match is one of only five matches in the history of professional wrestling that Dave Meltzer has ever awarded negative five stars, or, as his colleague Brian Alvarez would say, Minus five stars! And even if you don't take much stock in that, there are plenty of other people who felt that it was terrible, including some who were actually involved in it. Take a listen to this clip from the WWE's 2005 DVD, The Self-Destruction of the Ultimate Warrior, where Hogan, Bischoff, and Mean Gene Okerlund discussed the match. I think I agree with the critics that the Hulk Hogan Ultimate Warrior match in 1998, Halloween Havoc, was one of the worst matches in history. I think I pretty much came up with some harebrained idea that ruined that match. We had all the intensity going into it, and I came up with this harebrained idea since his character was so far off the wall that after I beat him up and was really doing a pounding on him, that he should make this huge fighting comeback blind. And I kind of blew it. I got in the ring and I had this huge wad of flash paper. And as I went down the corner, I pulled out my tights and I was going to light it with a lighter and throw it in his face. And then he would be blind. And when I'd go to grab him by the neck, he'd reach out and grab me and start his comeback. And all of a sudden, we're in the corner. It's time for the flash paper. Time for all the fire to blind the elephant work. Going for something. Hogan's got something. He's digging out. You. That's great paint. I pulled the flash paper. I couldn't get the lighter lit. All of a sudden, the lighter lit. The flash paper blew up in my face. Burned all the hair off my mustache and all my eyebrows and eyelids. You know, and I think probably everybody in the arena started laughing. Was that, a, was that like a fireball or something that he attempted to throw at the warrior? He was going to... He was going to... Tried to blind him. He tried to blind him. He was going to burn that man. That's what he was going to do. It pretty much ruined the match, but he didn't make the comeback blind. If the timing of these two men were any worse in this match, you'd probably have to have them restart the match. Let's start this one over because this is just completely a disaster. You've turned this four-squared ring into a parking lot. It was horrible. The Ultimate Warrior is not a great ring technician. Hulk Hogan is, without a doubt, one of the most charismatic, entertaining performers, I think, in the history of our industry. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he can have a great match with everybody. He's got to be in the ring with somebody that compliments his style and compliments his character. And the Ultimate Warrior was just not that guy. And Bischoff's grabbed the referee. Horace is coming the ring. You can smell it all the way down the street in Las Vegas. Now, the match was bad enough, but things then got even worse for WCW on this night. Why? Because they planned for the pay-per-view to go for 3 hours and 15 minutes instead of the usual 3 hours, and apparently they forgot to inform some of the cable companies. This resulted in an estimated 25% of the audience losing their pay-per-view feed during the show, meaning that roughly 80,000 paying customers completely missed the Goldberg DDP main event. 
That's right, they got to see most, if not all, of Hogan vs. Warrior, but none of Goldberg DDP. And that's a real shame because this was a great match, definitely one of the best Goldberg has ever had. Up to this point, Goldberg was still undefeated and pretty much killing everyone in squash matches, but this match went more than 10 minutes and featured DDP outsmarting Goldberg on several occasions, including leaping over a spear attempt, then slipping out of a jackhammer and hitting Goldberg with a diamond cutter. And the crowd absolutely fucking loved it, because Goldberg was actually looking vulnerable for what was basically the first time in his career. Ultimately, however, Goldberg was able to hit a jackhammer and pick up the victory to retain his World Heavyweight Championship, putting his record at 155-0. and A great showing for both men, though. But now, let's get back to that little issue of the pay-per-view feeds cutting out. Doing research on this, the number that I found most often is that WCW had to issue roughly $1.5 million worth of refunds to the fans whose feeds cut out before they could watch the Goldberg DDP match, not to mention the flood of angry calls and the fact that the company just looked completely incompetent. So what would they do to make up for this blunder? Well, that takes us into Monday Nitro. The first hour of the show featured four matches, Stevie Ray defeating Kenny Chaos, Canyon defeating Prince Iakea, Alex Wright defeating Barry Horowitz, and yes, you heard that correctly, Horowitz still had a job in the company in late 1998, and Wrath defeated Sick Boy. So that was the first 60 minutes. What did they do after that? Well, they re-showed the entire Goldberg DDP match from Halloween Havoc on free television, coincidentally, right as Monday Night Raw was starting over on the USA Network. Certainly, you could say this was a nice gesture for the 25% of fans who did not get to see the match, but if you're one of the 75% who paid good money to watch it on pay-per-view, I imagine you were probably a little pissed off that you could have just tuned in the night after and seen it for free. So did this end up working out in WCW's favor? More on that in just a moment. So continuing with the rest of the show, Saturn defeated Eddie Guerrero by disqualification, Kenny Chaos and Rick Steiner defeated Stevie Ray and the Giant to retain the WCW Tag Team Championships, and yes, you heard that correctly, Rick Steiner and Kenny Chaos are the Tag Team Champions because Steiner handpicked him to be his partner for some reason. Kidman defeated Juventud Guerrera to retain his Cruiserweight Championship. Conan and Lex Luger versus Scott Hall and Scott Steiner ended in a no contest. And in your main event... Diamond Dallas Page defeated Bret Hart to win the WCW United States Championship. Presumably that was his reward for helping Goldberg have the best match of his career the previous night. So on that note, how did WCW fare in the ratings on this evening? Well, Nitro scored a whopping 5.06 rating, which completely destroyed Monday Night Raw's 4.48. Specifically, the reshowing of the DDP Goldberg match carried the show, and here's a quick tidbit from the Wrestling Observer discussing how well that segment performed. Goldberg vs. Page broke the all time cable television viewing record by doing a 7.18 rating and 10.2 share in 5,367,000 homes, or approximately 7,782,000 viewers. This broke the all-time viewership record set on July 9th for the Hulk Hogan vs. Goldberg title change. What was doubly amazing is that this record was set during football season when traditionally a percentage of the wrestling audience is siphoned off. Largely because of that one match and a strong first hour, no doubt built by curiosity stemming from the fiasco the previous night, WCW did one of its best ever ratings. 
So there you have it. Their pay-per-view stupidity cost them $1.5 million, but it did result in them winning in the television ratings, so clearly Nitro now has quite a bit of momentum, right? Right? Well, not exactly. The reason why I felt it was necessary to discuss all of these shenanigans is because this episode of Nitro, on October 26, 1998, marks the very last time that WCW wins in the head-to-head ratings. That's it. It's all WWF from here on out. And honestly, that kinda makes sense. They may have built up some goodwill by showing a pay-per-view main event on free TV, but all of those dumb decisions over the past few months eventually added up, and the fans ended up turning away as a result. I mean, when they're constantly giving us hokey segments with the Warrior, splitting the NWO into two separate factions, putting celebrities like Jay Leno in pay-per-view main events, and having friggin' Chucky promote his movie during a Rick Steiner promo, well, you can only insult the wrestling fans' intelligence for so long. Unfortunately, WCW had to learn that the hard way, but I hope they enjoyed their final ratings victory. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. For the second week in a row, I have to say that this is an episode of Raw that I would recommend that you skip. Aside from the main event, the matches were shotgun Saturday night caliber, and even Shane McMahon's promo, which was probably the highlight of the show, ended up dragging on a bit too long. Not to mention the fact that The Undertaker and Paul Bearer promised a brand new era in the WWF last week, and this week they aren't even on the show. I think that just about tells you all you need to know in terms of how seriously this episode of Raw was booked. Also, I realize that there's probably some crossover between wrestling fans and Motley Crue fans, but you're still taking a pretty big gamble by dedicating a whole segment to a band performing one of their songs. In fact, you can just ask WCW about that when they have KISS perform on Nitro in August of 1999. Let's just say it doesn't go so well for them. If I had to take a few silver linings from this episode of Raw, it would be the fact that Shane won't be doing commentary anymore, and we also got the formation of that new stable with Edge, Christian, and Gangrel. Oh, and the fact that Steven Regal is dressed like a lumberjack. Other than that, you should probably go out of your way to avoid this episode. Instead, just go watch that Goldberg DDP match, because it still stands up tremendously well 19 years later. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod, just like our good friend Philip Goad did. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I'll leave you now with a clip from Tony Schiavone's podcast where he talks about how Halloween Havoc went long, and he also touches on the general state of WCW at the time. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. I don't know if anybody decided to go long. I think it just happened that way. In a very WCW way, it happened that way. WCW was out of control on many different fronts. More than anything else, we were out of control backstage. At the beginning of the show, I talked about going on the fly in the commentary, I think, with maybe the first match. And I said, we're going on the fly. 
which is the way we've been doing it as of late. And that was me kind of being a, a smart ass trying to rib on the square to the guys in the back that we don't know what the fuck we're doing all the time. And we are out of control. And I, I think the show, I don't, to my recollection, the show just went too long and we didn't know what to do about that. The show went too long and we had to get Hogan and warrior in. And by the time we got the Hogan and warrior, we were way too long moving ahead. It cost us big time. Now, of course, it helped us with the biggest rating ever, right? It was a loss win, but again, it goes back to this thing. And, and I believed it at that time. And I still believe it today. When you fuck the fans over, you're starting, your business is starting to go to shit.